and welcome to episode 956 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hi, Ben. So you've been watching the Bruce Bochy bullpen follies, or maybe just the Giants bullpen follies, over the last couple of weeks, and Joshian wrote a newsletter entry about it, so I was just reading about it and thinking about it. What are your impressions from having followed it more closely than I have? Has it been a Giants bullpen failure primarily or a Bochi failure primarily? I think that you could, I mean, look, certainly if you lose a whole bunch of games because your relievers blew the lead, you had the wrong relievers in. It's kind of its own evidence. But like realistically the there's not the, there's just not an option he trusts right now and having a manager run a bullpen with nobody he trusts is going to lead to a few desperation moves here and there and some moves that you disagree with because you do trust that guy a little more than he does uh but there's not really any option that's that's good there and so i i have a hard time thinking that bochi is doing anything all that different than, or I guess out of character for him. Like, I, I don't think that I've reevaluated him or anything, but there does seem to be a little bit of a, a little bit of a panic going on when it gets late in games, uh, just because, uh, he hates, you know, he hates, he hates everybody. Um, right now, I, it seems to me, like, I don't actually know that. Like, it's not, he's yeah. not saying that, but it seems to me. Uh, yeah. and, uh, so I don't know. There, there's probably, I could think of a few moves where I thought, that was weird, or why is he in? Uh, I thought mm-hmm. it was. I thought it was very weird that Madison Bumgarner got pulled after the Puig stare down. It seemed like Madison Bumgarner was going to go eleven innings in that game if need be because the bullpen had been failing so badly. Uh, so to pull him after seven and like ninety six pitches or whatever was a big surprise. There was a game where he. I think the game before that he brought in Romo for the ninth and. Romo, like, got the first guy out and then, like, I don't know, gave up a hit or something. And then he pulled him for Casilla. And that was a really weird move because Uh if you think that Casilla's better, then bring him in to start the inning. And if you think Romo's better, then leave him out to finish the inning. It was a safe situation. It was very odd. Um, And it's not like Romo looked unusual for him. So I guess that that's a long way of saying that uh, if... It's it hasn't looked good, uh-huh. uh, but also I think that he's playing with with jump cards right now. Yeah, I think Joe said that he's down to something like two point seven batters faced per reliever in September, something like that, and he had been at three point six, I believe, before this month, which was already low by big league standards. I'm sure it probably goes down league wide in September, but. This seems sort of extreme. Has it been a torture as a spectator slash listener to have basically two outs per reliever being the norm right now? It's it's not that difficult. It's sorry, it's not that different when you're watching it than three point whatever. So uh-huh. so no, not really. I mean, he was like the the first half of the year. He was such an outlier as far as getting platoon matchups. I mean, he was he was all the way on the other side of the ocean compared to the other teams, and it was working. And it seemed like Bochi being brilliant i don't yeah yeah and as joe pointed out he has guys it makes sense to act that way with like javier lopez and sergio romo guys who are cut out for specialty work but Mm. 
Anyway, I was wondering about it because someone was asking me about Manager of the Year awards, and I was doing my usual disclaimers about how it's just a crazy award to vote for and how if you have a Hall of Fame manager who is generally acclaimed for his bullpen management, then I don't know why would he suddenly become bad at that, but this is a case where you could at least argue that maybe it's managerial pressing or managerial trying too hard. And so I always wonder just, you know, if you're a good manager, aren't you always a good manager? How does a good manager have a bad year or how do you even decide if he was better or worse this year than usual? I guess like unless there's some big clubhouse blow up or he says something regrettable to the press or something like that, it's pretty hard to say in a way that, you know, you can point out when a hitter slumps, but if a manager slumps, I don't even know what that looks like really. But maybe this is one instance, possibly. It is really weird that um, a week ago he he said that Hunter Strickland was going to continue to get saves. And uh-huh. and I retweeted that with the snarky, I can't remember the exact wording, but I said, well, that's optimistic. The uh-huh. joke being that he might get save opportunities, but the way the Giants have been pitching, it's optimistic to think anybody's going to convert them. And that was a week ago, and Hunter Strickland not only has no saves, but he's only been brought into one opportunity. And so I don't even know what the point of that of that announcement was. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to bring up before we get to emails, did you read the Bryce Harper's injury story that Chelsea Janes wrote in the Post? There's uh, still speculation about whether Harper is hurt. I, I guess there was a, a second recent Tom Verducci report earlier this week that there is something going on with his shoulder. And according to Chelsea, there was a meeting between Rizzo and Baker and Harper and the team's trainer after this report came out to try to get to the bottom of this, either grill Harper on whether there really is something wrong with him or try to find out where these leaks are coming from or where the erroneous reports are coming from. And the upshot of it was that According to Chelsea's reporting, Harper continued to deny that there's any problem, although it's odd that also according to her, he hasn't denied it publicly, but from what she heard, he denied it in this meeting and doesn't know where the reports would be coming from and doesn't think anyone in his inner circle would be talking to Verducci because they all know Verducci from the cover story he wrote about him way back when and it's uh, wait, kind of an wait. interesting story. Do- yeah. Doesn't think anybody would be talking to Verducci because they know him from the cover story back when? Right. I'm confused. Which, I, I, I guess you could say the, the opposite, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess, the, I guess he's saying that they wouldn't have unintentionally said something that they didn't mean to say because they, I don't know, didn't realize who they were talking to or something like that. Is there any, but, in, is there any incentive for Harper to Harper's camp to play this up? publicly and play, yeah, play well, it down with his team. Something she also said, she said that uh, one, I'm quoting now, one logical suspect would be Harper's often outspoken agent, Scott Boris, who would have incentive to suggest Harper's decreased production was the product of injury. Harper will be a free agent after the 2018 season. Ask for comment about Harper's situation. Boris declined, citing HIPAA laws. So yeah, I don't I don't know whether that makes it better or worse. If Harper's hurt, is that good, I guess? <laughs> At least you can say, well, he had something wrong with him, and if that something is fixed, then he'll be fine again. But it's another instance of 
Harper having something wrong with him. And which if has he's happened in the past, and if he's resisting anything getting fixed, yeah, right. But like, uh, yeah. Anyway, I mean, he's yeah. uh, well. If you had to bet, though, if if somebody forced you to bet, you would bet that he has a hurt shoulder, right? Like that's the, that's a fairly easy bet. Not that we know. Maybe it's not true. But if you had to bet, all the evidence would seem to suggest that he's playing with a hurt shoulder. Everything makes sense in this season if he's playing with a hurt shoulder. Well, a lot of things do. On the other hand, it doesn't seem obvious that he's in pain anyway. in any way. Chelsea mentioned at the beginning of her article that in this most recent game, he's slid head first into second base twice, even though he didn't really need to do that. And didn't seem to show any reluctance to do that. And and the other thing is that the last time we were talking about Bryce Harper and this report about his injury came out, or, or when Rob Arthur and Jeff Sullivan wrote about Bryce Harper and Rob speculated in his article for 538 that maybe Harper was hiding something. And then the first report came out, which seemed to confirm that. But then immediately after that, Harper went on a really crazy hot streak. So, And we all thought he was fine again. And so now he's slumped again since then. But I don't know if that fits. Like if you have a shoulder problem that isn't healing, then can you also have a really hot hot streak right in the middle of that and be hitting home runs and everything? I don't, I don't know. Well, so. it, it wasn't a hot streak, mostly Babbitt. I mean, he wasn't hitting many home runs even when he was hot. He was hitting 400, but it was not with power. Maybe. I remember a couple of very long home runs he hit, I think, during that stretch. Yeah, maybe he did. It wasn't a ton of home runs. You're right. That He did hit one very long one. Yeah. That, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, Verducci's great, so you'd think he knows something, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if it makes sense otherwise. Maybe we'll find out eventually. Yeah, you kind of do hope that it's something that could just heal and he could be back to normal again because the depressing thing when I did the podcast with Jeff and Rob was the idea that maybe he just got lucky last year and uh, there were ways in in which he exceeded how well we would have expected him to do based on how hard he was hitting the ball and all that kind of thing. And I don't like the explanation that just says Bryce Harper isn't as good as uh, he seemed to be last year. Anyway, we'll see. Probably needs Matt Williams there to motivate him. <laughs> yeah. All right. Emails? Anything else? No. Okay. Scott just wants to know what we think the chances are that Gary Sanchez wins the Rookie of the Year award and is still eligible to win it next year. Uh, Woody? Is he still? Uh, he's still. Uh, he's still not going to get to 130, huh? He's past 130. I think the rule is that you have to be at 130 before September 1st. No, 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 no. Playing time is September 1st. The 45 days or whatever it is on the active roster is by September 1st. At bats or at bats. Okay. All right. Well, then <laughs> the chances are zero. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as for winning. Yeah. What It was, uh, it was you know, it was fun when he was, he had like 80 plate appearances and like, you know, 2.1 war or something like that. And it was fun because, uh, you know, people have won Rookie of the Year with 2.1 war, but mm-hmm. it seemed, it, it seemed he was doomed because there was a very good candidate. Michael Fulmer was a very good candidate, uh, for Rookie of the Year. And so there, there wasn't like some blank, some empty space that he was, he was going to, uh, to, to fill. Fulmer had a very bad start in his last start. His ERA is now over three. He is more valuable by war, uh, at least by some measures of war. And he has been up for a lot longer, but mm. there is a there is a um, and starting pitchers are usually very undervalued or underrated or whatever in rookie of the year voting, mm. and uh, 
the difference between 2.99 and 3.03 might actually matter. Uh, so yeah. I could sort of see what he's got a, a week and a half left. If Fulmer had an ERA of like three he hits two, two homers a day, yeah, so, yeah, so that's <laughs> uh, if Fulmer were to get hit, is Fulmer shut down? He's not shut down, is he? If he were to get hit in his I next do. start, if he were to go ten and eight with a three point three ERA, yeah, he's I... coming off his second worst start of the season, which may have hurt him. He had his worst start of the season in mid August, and then he's coming off his second worst, which pushed his ERA over three. So yeah, I mean, if he if he has another great two starts or something, then that really might change something as opposed to two bad starts. But like, okay, so Gio Soto, when he won it, had 23 homers. And a catcher who has 23 homers, that's a very valid rookie of the year. And he had 3.3 war. And Sanchez has 19 homers and 3.0 war. <laughs> so he is really one good week from matching Soto in both home runs and war. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd give it, I'd vote for him right now. I, yeah, I don't I think I would too. I I would vote for him without like I I don't believe I don't believe in penalizing guys too much for being in the minors. I mean, obviously, it's the the lar- the more they perform, the more you can believe in their performance, and the more it matters. And it's definitely better to to have a candidate who has played more than 188 plate appearances. But look, it's not like he was taking it easy at home and decided to start <laughs> playing baseball in August. The, his yeah, his he was blocked. By he was other players exactly. His boss said, "You're not allowed." That's not his fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. uh, anyway, is he? What what is it? If you had to bet on his chances at this point, he'd be like thirty percent. I think you think I'd higher? Go higher? Higher? Yeah. Is I he sixty percent? Is he the favorite? I think he's the favorite. Wow. I think. I mean, in value, I think BP and Fulm, BP has has Sanchez and Fulmer tied essentially. And I think the other win value metrics, or at least Fangraphs, I think now has Sanchez ahead. And this is a, a weird year for rookies in that there's much more rookie war on the National League side this year than there is in the AL. That just fluctuates a lot from year to year, but it just so happens that there are less less high-performing rookies in the AL this year. There's no great candidate like there is with Seager in the NL. So I think it happens because if only just there might be some people who would penalize him and just say, no, you, you, I won't vote for anyone who wasn't up for the first half of the season. So there's probably some percentage of voters who would think that. But I think the trajectory of the seasons probably highly favors him in that we've I mean, Sanchez is going to end the season basically on a historic hot streak that he's been on since he came back up again. So I think that's in everyone's mind. We're watching Sanchez home run highlights twice a day these days. And Fulmer has a four plus ERA since the beginning of August and is coming off a not so good start. And so I think the Gary Sanchez fever is pretty contagious. All right. Yeah, I I guess I'm with you. I think now you've uh, you've convinced me. I mean, look, it was. It, I it was I, I think that probably I'm still a week behind. And when people were asking this question and he had like 14 home runs, well 14 home runs is not a full season. But and so it you it really is sort of jarring to give it to somebody who hasn't reached, you know, even close to full. But 19 home runs for a catcher is a full season. Like he has reached full season milestones. He hasn't played a full season, but if you can do like I had a I had a friend who uh would go into the professor's office the first day of of class. And most professors would not let him do this, but every once in a while he would get one and he'd go to the professor and say, 
what do I need to do to pass this class? Give me the list and then I'll, I'll just get out of your hair. And he would like get the professor would give him the list. You got to, you know, do this, this and this. I need papers on these, these and these. And you got to test this, this and this. And he would do it all in like a week. And then he would just never go to class again. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why I'm using that analogy. That's a, I remember when he told me that thinking, what an idiot you are. That sounds <laughs> stupid. Uh, but I think what I was trying to say is that Gary Sanchez shouldn't be penalized for packing an entire year into a month and a half. Yeah. <laughs> so, sure. Give it to him. All right. <laughs> sure. Okay. By the way, Gary Sanchez. Gary Sanchez features in this week's Play Index. Oh, okay. Great. Tease. All right. Question from Patreon supporter Andrew O'Hara. And he wants to know about Terrence Gore, who was finally caught stealing last night, just barely. Oh. For the first time in the regular season, he had that one in the postseason where he stole the base but then came off the bag a little bit. This was a, a replay review instance that was sort of sketchy and probably he would have been safe in the past. Anyway, question from Andrew. Randy Gisarelli recently tweeted that he thinks the Royals should keep Gore on their 25-man roster all next season and that he could be worth two to three wins. And that is what Randy tweeted. He said, I'm 100% convinced that the Royals should keep Gore on the roster all of 2017. His speed is seriously worth two to three wins a season. Andrew says that is the same estimate a friend and I came up with when looking at his effect on run expectancy and how often he might be able to be deployed. Does this seem right to you? Would win probability added be a better stat to evaluate his worth than war? Assuming his success rate is unsustainable, what does his success rate look like across a full season? I think the tough part of this evaluation is trying to quantify what you lose when you have to put him in on defense or when he actually has to bat when games go into extra innings. So let's say that Terrence Gore, as a major league hitter, is a 160-205-205 hitter. I don't know if he is, but let's say that, that he is. Okay. What did he hit this year in the minors? Okay, so this year in double A Texas League double A, he hit 233, 314, 249. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. So let's say he's that. He's a... He's a 410 OPS with, I don't know, I'll give, give him a little bonus for maybe being higher OBP and lower slug. So, because he's not, he's not a fool. So if that's his true talent and he were on a 25 man roster in the American league, how many plate appearances would you guess he gets? Well, you probably, uh, do we know how, how good a defender he is? I mean, he plays left field mostly. So I'm guessing not the greatest, but uh, you'd think someone that fast probably couldn't be that terrible. But I'm, I'm just trying to think, would you put him in He played. In he, he, played he actually played mostly center this year. Ah, okay. All right. So so you'd put him in late in games, maybe as a defensive replacement, and maybe he'd get in a bat here or there. You'd put him in in lopsided games. I don't know. I think in September games, I think he'd probably get 100... Wow. 110 plate appearances. Okay. I was going to say like I don't think, 30. <laughs> I don't I don't think you could hide him that much over the course of a full season. Yeah, well that's sure. that's the yeah. question is how much can you not hide him? How much does he yeah. cost you by not being able to hide him? And how much do you without realizing it miss the 25th man on the roster who can do other things? So with it helps that he's with Ned Yost cuz Ned mm -hmm. Yost already doesn't pinch hit, already doesn't need an extra pinch hitter on the bench. And it hurts that he's on the Royals because the Royals already have Gerard Dyson. 
Yeah. And right. in a perfect world, Gerard Dyson, I might, I know D- Dyson was doing better this year. So yeah, I, I might maybe. be out. Is that outdated? Is Dyson considered, let, let me check. Dyson, eh, eh, nah, you want Dyson in that role too. Like yeah. I, ideally you have three outfielders who are not Gerard Dyson. And so in that sense, Gore is superfluous, more superfluous. I mean, Dyson is the fastest player in the American League, possibly, and is best suited to a role like this. So if any team doesn't need Terrence Gore, if any team has 96% of Terrence Gore as it is, it's the Royals. So what what is the question exactly, Ben? question is what he'd be worth if you were to deploy him like this all season or as close to it as possible. And right, one so you want me to bring up the thing, Billy Hamilton You want me to bring up yeah, the Billy Hamilton, the Billy Hamilton article. <laughs> okay. I will just point out briefly that August Fagerstam wrote about Gore's career so far, such as it is, and his stolen base runs per 162 games rate is uh, 22.8 runs, which would be the highest of anyone ever. But um, obviously, it's I don't know that you could use him this way the whole year. Right, because that's with him playing quite a bit. Yeah. That's, that's not with him coming in once a game, you know, four games a week. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's with him playing in something like a fourth outfielder role. Uh, so there's a lot more base running going on than he would have. But uh, so Ben, uh, as you know, I wrote about this very question when Billy Hamilton was stealing 150 something bases in the minors, and the Reds were a playoff contender. And so I looked to see how much Billy Hamilton would be worth if he were brought up and used as a pinch runner in leverage situations, and and in no way other than that. So I. Didn't have to worry about what he would hit or how he would feel. Just pinch runner. And it depends on two things. One, Billy Hamilton is not was not that efficient of a base stealer compared to Terrence Gore. And so yeah. if you if you if you uh, assumed that Billy Hamilton would have a success rate similar to what he had in the minors, then the value of him is was actually very low. It was like over the course of a month, it was I think a tenth a tenth of a win. So that's not that exciting, even if it's well, and that's that is leverage because I was doing this by win probability added. Uh, however, if you assume that he never ever ever gets caught, Gore is close to that, then it's better. It's still not that much though. Um, let's see, if he were a hundred percent successful, he'd add a quarter of a win in a month. So that would be a win and a half over the course of a year, and that is never ever 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 getting caught, not even once. And once you start adding even single-caught stealings, that number gets whittled away pretty quick because getting caught stealing in a high-leverage situation is usually pretty painful. Uh, so let's say maybe I could see a win. The problem with... Uh, but then, of course, if he's adding defense, more defense than his rare plate appearances cost, then maybe that gets him even higher. And a win for a bench guy is arguably worthwhile, depending on where you're losing elsewhere based on your lack of you know roster utility. The problem as I found and the way that I did the Billy Hamilton thing is I I I literally went through every Reds game from a random September and I pretended I was the manager and I picked the moment that I would put Billy Hamilton in the game and I had him steal the base. And that was it. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was just, yeah. it was pretty simple. Um and I looked at what the win probability was if he stole that base and it is actually hard to leverage a guy perfectly like if you do a perfect if you know exactly how the game is going to go after the fact then you can get his value up quite a bit more after that but a lot of times it's the sixth inning and you're not sure if that's the moment or not or whether there's going to be another moment a lot of times the moment 
doesn't come at all. It's a one nothing game, and you need a stolen base, and yet the only guy who gets on is you know your is Paul Goldschmidt, and then you have to decide whether to pinch run Paul Goldschmidt, a uh, pinch run for Paul Goldschmidt, who's already a pretty good base runner, and you're playing for a tie, and if you tie now, you don't have Paul Goldschmidt, and it's very hard to actually get the pinch runner in the right situation every time. So I uh, long long way of getting to the point that if you think that Gore is a 93% base stealer, uh, which mm-hmm. I could buy, I, be- I would believe that, then I would guess that he is a useful player to keep on your bench all season long and that he would be worth something between half a win and a win and a half based on win probability added uh, and that uh, if everything breaks right, he might win you uh, three one-run games and you win manager of the year. Hmm. Okay. But that's if everything breaks right. If everything breaks wrong, he adds literally nothing. <laughs> right. All right. Well, I don't have too much to uh, add to that. I haven't haven't looked at it in that sort of detail. So just instinctively, it seems like, yeah, if you have a guy who almost always steals a base, that should be really valuable. But Especially on a team like the Royals that doesn't really use its whole roster. Yeah, right. Okay. Question from Scott. I have an idea for a postseason format MLB would never embrace. The first step is creating two 15-team leagues without divisions. We keep the 162-game season, but come October, we take the best four teams from each league and have them play every other team in a 21-game, three games against each of seven other teams format. Teams with the best regular season records get more home games. Best record wins the trophy. The, time bre- the tiebreaker is run differential. While obviously this would deprive us of an actual World Series, would it be a better way to craft a postseason that yields an outcome where the best team wins the whole shebang? There was a BP debate style article with one author <laughs> recently, right? Like Henry Druchel wrote something about this recently. He took both sides of this debate and he talked about a way that we could make the postseason just even more exciting and, and less likely to result in the best team actually winning and and then what Scott is talking about essentially making it more likely that the best team will win and there are definitely ways that we could make it more likely for the best team to win even if you don't just pronounce a winner at the end of the 162 game regular season which is boring you could do something like Scott is suggesting here and that would definitely give you a better chance to have the best team be your World Series winner but this would be comparatively boring. Right? Uh, <laughs> this, would, <laughs> this would be bad. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I think that sometimes we talk about the how to format the postseason, but the postseason isn't actually what drives the decision. It's how to make the regular season interesting is what drives the decision, uh, I, I think. And um, I'm reading the Bill James historical abstract uh, right now, slowly. Uh, but a few pages every day, and uh, there, he has a line in there that it, that something like uh, he's talking about baseball in the 1880s and attendance for the bad teams, the bottom rung, and why there was so much turnover and why the bad teams kept going out of business. And he says basically, it's impossible to sell an 11th place team. I think that's true. You, the problem with any 15 team league, uh, even if it is fairer for the teams at the top, is that there's a big difference between 11th place. Uh, and fifth or eighth place and third. Uh, and uh, I just, I think that you create way too many teams that don't feel like they're 
in the baseball ecosystem at all anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the divisions settle that. And every solution that I hear for uh, making baseball more exciting that involves a 15-team league and the best records go, uh, I think, uh, loses me. Yeah. And in the postseason, you want a an enemy, right? You want, like, a villain. You want to have a five- or seven-game series against one, one team where you get to hate that one team, and there's a narrative to the series, and there's an arc to it, and if you're just every team is playing everyone else and it's like a round-robin type thing, that would be better at establishing who the best team is maybe, but it just wouldn't be nearly as entertaining. So I think the postseason is fine <laughs> as it is. I don't think it needs to be fixed. There may be some ways you could make the regular season more fair without sacrificing anything, like more balanced schedules, that, that sort of thing. But as far as the playoff format, works pretty well, right? Playoffs are fun. Playoffs are great. Yeah? Yeah. I really like the playoffs. <laughs> All right. Play index. All right. The other day I noted uh, publicly in front of everybody that Mike Trout by war is has more career war than every player in the world who's younger than Dustin Pedroia. Uh, and Dustin Pedroia is old. He's been bald for seven years. He is an <laughs> old player. He has been... Yeah. Like, like he was, he was, he is a guy who has already gone through his decline phase and moved into his uh, surprisingly good grandpa phase. <laughs> and that's what it takes. You have to get a 30, a guy who's eight years older than Trout to find somebody with more career war. And uh, the reason that that is true is because Trout recently passed Evan Longoria, who is 30, and uh, I think late last year, or maybe early this year, passed Andrew McCutcheon, who I think is 29. Trout, of course, is his age 24 season. And so that's one way to think about how impressive Mike Trout's career war is. But another is to look at war per game. And so I wanted to, to see how he how his war per game stacks up to other people. Because some people have, uh, for instance, uh, only played a month and a half and been out of their mind the entire time. And I wanted to see how he does against the Corey Seegers and the uh, Gary Sanchez's and so on of the world. And so I took uh, everybody who has at least one win above replacement in their career, dropped them into a spreadsheet with their uh, games. All right, so, and I looked at how many games played per war, how, how many games it takes them to produce a win in their career. And uh, so I, I, have, I have all these, and uh, there are a few that I want to point out, a few things that I thought were interesting once I sorted this. But the most interesting thing about this is that when I did this yesterday morning, Mike Trout was number one. And that's like, you expected Mike Trout to be at the top. That was the point. But at the very, very top, when Gary Sanchez is doing what he is doing, it's really insane. Gary Sanchez is a average to above average defensive catcher with a 1100 and something career OPS. <laughs> and his war per game is lower than Mike Trout's. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Yeah, that is pretty I, I crazy. 
by yeah, by baseball's prospectus, because I was looking this up earlier, I think Sanchez is well today after the after the two homers would be on pace for an eleven point three war season, uh-huh. but maybe different by baseball reference and before the two homers. But yeah, just that it's Actually, close. Yeah, no, it's, it's about 11 more on, on reference, too. Let's see. It's 43 uh-huh. games. By baseball references war, it'd be 11.3. He's in 11.3 war per 162. But two things. One uh, is that he had a uh, negative tenth of a war last year in two, <laughs> in two games. Uh-huh. Uh, and... Uh, Two is that I did this yesterday before the two home runs. So now yeah. live on this podcast, I'm going to recalculate Gary okay. Sanchez to see if he has taken the lead. And then if he has, this could be something we pay attention to uh, if you want to. <laughs> so he has taken the lead, Ben. Wow. He okay. is now, Gary Sanchez is now the greatest player, the greatest active career at one win every 15 games. Actually, one win every 14.7 games. And he's actually got a pretty healthy lead on Trout after that two homer game. Uh, which is what happens when you only played 40. Oh, wait, hang on. I have to add the game, too. 15. He's at exactly one win every 15 games. So if he were to go warless for the next five, he and Trout would be tied. But in the meantime, uh, he is the champion. Gary Sanchez at the top, Mike Trout trailing him. Now, Trout is how many games then per win? 16.7. 16.7. That's crazy. So that's a 10, every every less than three weeks, yeah. Mike Trout is winning your team an extra game yeah. that a AAA guy wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, I, was, I went looking for the greatest five-year stretches ever, and he was a not great September, like a normal September-ish away from having, I think, the third greatest five-year stretch of anyone in the... Uh, post-war era, which mm. is already insane. Like that, all the Mickey Mantles and the Willie Mazes and Ricky Hendersons and the Joe Morgans and the Barry Bonds and all that. Uh, and he's got the third best, I think. But 20 to 24. Like everybody else is doing it from like 26 to 30. Like their, be- you know, their peaks are their peaks. Or, yeah. or at least it's like 23 to 27 or whatever. Trout's, it's his first five years. He doesn't even get to choose from his whole career for the best five-year peak. He's yeah. stuck with what he's got. And he hasn't even finished that five-year <laughs> that five-year <laughs> run yet. And he's already ahead of everybody. And he played one of those five years when he was 20. And he played another one when he was 21. <laughs> Everybody's bad when they're 21. He's so good. He's so yeah. good. All right. Who do you think is number three? Um, That's why this is... Now, this is where we're going now, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> what was the minimum here? Uh, one war. It is not somebody with one war, though. I could tell you that okay, so it's to Alex, a Alex, with a career. Yeah, Alex Bregman is number 23. Uh, Andrew mm-hmm. Tolls is number 30. But no, it's uh-huh. everybody, everybody from this point on that we're going to, well, everybody, I, I'll, I'll rule out Trey Turner for you. Turner is number 13. Like, I'm not promising you that it's going to be, you know, Adrian Beltre or anything. But uh-huh. it is, yeah, it, there are no, like, good three weeks players uh-huh. that you have to think about. Is there any chance that it's still Pujols? Actually, no, but I did bold Pujols because he is still number nine, despite nine. Uh-huh. five years yeah. now of being of being this guy, basically just adding games, which is partly a, a comment on how insanely good Albert Pujols was, uh, and it's always worth going back and revisiting that. But also a 
a reminder that as disastrous as this tr- this deal is going to end up being, and as disappointing as Pujols has been, it is worth every once in a while remembering that he is a productive major leaguer on the Angels. That he is not uh, he is not Vernon Wells. He is basically a, has been a three win player for five years. You could do worse. And if uh-huh. you if you start looking at ten million dollars a win or something like that as the prorated value of a win on the free agent market over the course of that 10-year deal, he's not going to miss it by that much. Like, he's probably going to get, like, he'll probably be a 20 to 25 win player, even conservatively, over the course of that 10-year deal. And, mm-hmm. you know, at $8 million a year, for instance, that's 200 and He's only getting paid 240 or 250 depending on how you do the inflation and stuff. So... Eh. I mean, there have been a lot of worse deals than the Albert Pujols deal, and it's probably important to remember that. Yeah. Okay. Is it Longoria? No, Longoria is actually number twenty. Oh, wow. Yeah, he is at twenty-seven games per win. Huh. Cabrera? No, think think yeah, think guys with no decline. Mm, well, <laughs> Cabrera. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Think guys who can play a position. Uh, let me um, see where Cabrera. Cabrera is actually number thirty-four. Geez, wait, how is that possible? Well, for it's possible for one reason because Cabrera has no defensive value added, and you know how war works. Okay. It's also possible because they are really tightly bunched once you get to a certain point, and like uh-huh. yeah. So it's not like it's not like there's a huge difference between Cabrera and. Paul Goldschmidt, but Paul Goldschmidt is number 16. All right. McCutcheon? No. No. Younger, Ben. Younger. It's going to be somebody who's a lot younger. It's somebody who's a lot younger. All right. McCutcheon's in his prime still. At least physically he yeah. should be. Yeah. It's not that, yeah, it's not so much that McCutcheon has a decline or that Cabrera has declined. It's that to be on this list, you have to only have a career year under your belt. Like this is, we're at career year levels. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking to win every twenty games. That's an eight win player. So who is to average eight wins <laughs> a yet, season? Pool is ninth with uh, with five bad years. Yeah. Well, all right. Is it then like Bryant? Uh, Bryant is number six. Uh-huh. Mookie? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. It's Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts, number three third best career in baseball right now. And if you take out Sanchez, Mookie Betts, has, I mean, he's 17 wins already. He's only 23 years old and has basically played two full seasons. Number four is Corey Seager. Number five is Josh Donaldson, wow. which I thought was worth commenting on. Mm-hmm. Uh, number seven is uh, where the... Machado? Uh, Machado is uh, number 10. Mm. He had that, he had the post, I think it was the post ACL year where he, he was just okay. Uh-huh. Lindor? Uh, Lindor is number 11. Okay. You have Pujols and A-Rod right above them. A-Rod still active for the purposes of this query. But number seven is the first uh, controversial uh, war, what is it good for, guy because he's all defense, Kevin Kiermeyer. Mm, okay. And uh, so let's see, I want to scroll down uh, some of the ones that jumped out to me. Number 22 is Starling Marte, okay. who I think of as a star and I think is generally thought of as an all-star and maybe even a star. But if you buy this, he is like a genuine superstar. And I think he is a genuine superstar. I think Starling Marte is fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, number 29 is uh, Ender Inciarte, which I thought was worth mentioning. 
Number 38 and 39, I'm mentioning because uh, they're right next to each other, and it puts both of them in perspective, I think, their whole careers. 38 and 39 are Harper and Springer, and uh, I guess it is, we fluctuate, we go back and forth on whether Bryce Harper is everything we dreamed of and more, or disappointing, and I guess right now, he's in the disappointing moment. Uh, and th- so I bring this up to uh, reinforce that, yeah, kind of kind of is disappointing. And I also bring it up because he's got 21 wins above replacement and he's 23 years old. Uh, but also just to point out how good George Springer is. And those are the only ones I bolded. If you want to know anything else, I'm happy to tell you. Where's Altuve? I guess Altuve had a, a few years where he was just... Altuve? Okay, Altuve is 20... is 63rd. He is uh, one behind Jason Kipnis and one ahead of Alex Gordon and Jacob Ellsbury. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nolan Arenado. Nolan Arenado. Josh Hamilton, by the way, is higher than I thought he would be. Arenado is number 25, uh, one behind Troy Tulowitzki. Okay. That's enough for me. All right. All right. So play index, use the coupon code BP, get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Okay. Question from Eric Westland, Patreon supporter. Do we, the baseball viewing public, know anything about the unwritten rules of a batter calling time? In the relatively few years that I've been watching a ton of ball, I can't recall any dust-ups or disagreements about it. It seems like a batter will call time if he thinks the pitcher is taking too long and the pitcher doesn't take it personally. I doubt, but correct me if I'm wrong, there is a rule in the rulebook limiting how often a batter can call time, but I have to assume there is an unwritten rule mechanism that would kick in if they did it over and over again. And uh, there is one dust-up that I can recall, because it was one of my favorite Grant Brisby unwritten rules breakdowns, and it's uh, we just celebrated the first anniversary of this. It's the, the Kyle Seeger, Jared Weaver time-calling <laughs> dust-up last year, which was great, which was uh, basically boiled down to the fact that Seeger calls time with both feet in the box. So he steps in, and it looks like he's ready, but then he calls time anyway, <laughs> and in this particular instance, he called time in a very sassy way, and uh, Weaver objected to that, and so that's one of them. That I think, wasn't what yeah. Eric's asking about exactly. It wasn't that he was calling time so many times. It was the way in which he called time. I, th- I think there's definitely unwritten rules about it, but I think that the first person that a pitcher gets mad at is the umpire for yeah. allowing it. I feel like it's really kind of an unwritten rule of what the umpire is going to let you get away with, let the batter get away with. I think the pitchers, to some degree, respect that the batters, that that's part of the game. The batters are trying to disrupt their timing and that that's intentional and it's in the spirit of competition. Uh, but the umpire has a responsibility to uh, keep the balance there. And so if an umpire is letting it get out of balance, then it's first his fault. I think there is a certain point, though, where it becomes a uh, something that a player is known for uh, and becomes a problem. Yeah. Okay. And last question, I suppose, from Aaron Hartman. Not Eric, but Aaron Hartman. I play in a one-pitch softball league, and it got me thinking, what would Major League Baseball look like if it were one pitch? So swinging strikes and fouls would be out, balls would be walks, and balls in play would stay the same. How would the game change? Pitch counts wouldn't be as big an issue for one. I think all three true outcomes would increase in this format. Any take would be a strikeout or walk, and I bet more fastballs would be pitched, leading to more home runs. What type of hitters would perform well? I'm thinking powerful contact hitters would become very valuable, and pitchers with high-velocity fastballs 
and good command would become very valuable as well. What, uh, assuming that there was no, I, I replied to Aaron immediately that the strike zone would have to be a ton bigger. I think that's, yeah. that's true. But if the strike zone were left exactly as it is now, how many runs per game in a major league where this was the rule? Hmm. More, right? I would, I would think much. I would, I'm thinking like the average game would be like maybe 14 to 11. Yeah, because pitchers would have to throw strikes pretty much all the time, and batters would know that they were doing so. Yeah. And and you'd always be ready to hit. You'd always be prepared to swing, because you'd, you'd probably swing, I don't know what the swing rate would be, but it would be very high. So, yeah, I agree. Lots of scoring. Is that it? I guess, would games be, games would be much more high scoring, but also faster, presumably, they would be probably less than you think, though. A walk is a slow yeah. play, even even if it's a one pitch walk, it's still kind of a slow play. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there'd be a lot of them. Yep, and just scoring runs takes time. Yeah. Okay, that'd be fun. I'd watch. I'd like to watch one game played under those rules with yeah. major league players. That'd I would too. I would too. I mean, I now I I kind of wonder if it could be uh, if this could be adapted into the the extra innings resolution strategy like people are always trying to figure out how to end extra innings games before they get to 20 innings if you think that is a problem with baseball then you might have suggested having you know a runner start on second base at the, at the beginning of an inning or something like that uh and uh, this is another way you could do it speed the game up and uh, also push the game toward uh offense yep all right so that will do it for today all right you can support the podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com effectively wild Five listeners who have already done so, Joe Kaminsky, Adam Bechea, Dr. P, Jacob Michael Marcellisi, and Daniel Wilson. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rules It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Go to the website at theonlyrulesithastowork.com for more information. Please leave us a review on Amazon and Goodreads if you like it. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Contact me and Sam at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. And we will talk to you again tomorrow. Amazing.